Well, here we are, midweek in the Word, Sunday recap. You sound so excited. I know, I'm so excited. <laughs> you sound very sick. I sound a little bit sick. It's a little bit of my voice yet. I'm still recovering from high school camp, so we'll live. I wonder how many more came back sick. I, I want to say we had four or five that I think were symptomatic while we were there. Uh, so I got to think that number is probably going to double itself. So we're not, Somebody brought something <laughs> to camp. So we're not sure and, who patient uh, zero is. Yes. And I told somebody <laughs> earlier, like, I'm not sure if it's that... I got tired enough that I got sick sure. or I got tired because I got sick. Yeah. But regardless. At this uh, yep, point, it's the it chicken worked. or the egg, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's We're kind of there. Yeah. But you gave an update on Sunday and it sounds like high school camp went great. Yeah. It went really well. I I enjoyed it. It was it was fun to be back there. It's been a few years for Jenna yeah. and me, but it was a, it was a joy. And uh, Dustin did a great job of teaching in Acts and we really enjoyed ourselves. That's great. Now, yeah. Dustin from Heritage Bible, correct? Yes, Dustin Rogers from He came from into Heritage. the teaching? Yep, he taught Acts 1 through 12, Okay. Uh, basically in eight sessions while we were at camp. That's good. great. Well, we missed all you guys, so we're glad you're back. We're, we're glad little, to be you, back. Little, you know, you had to go look at the mountains all week and it we looked rough. at empty offices. It was very it was very hard to put to prepare a sermon on worship while staring at the mountains. It while was staring it was at creation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. So it must have given you plenty of time because we all had to have a little trivia before you started. You know, that wasn't even something that I worked very hard to find. I I happened to be listening to something, and (laughs) one of the pastors I was listening to mentioned that. I was like, you know, that'd be a really good way to introduce introduce the message. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, that's where we got started. It was really fun. So I was sitting in the middle section. Our family was sitting in the Uh middle section back this week, and... It was it was great because you could literally hear people's minds going, whoa, what cool thing happened? Because you you know how many in the Old Testament? And then Isabel sitting next to me and she's like twenty four. <laughs> I'm like about, I think there's a few about. more chapters than twenty four in the Old Testament. Almost. And I'm sitting there going, Brad, I don't think there's anything because chapter and verses are not inspired. <laughs> So I'm like, no. all right, where did we connect? And it was it was pretty funny. Someone had there. guessed something, and I couldn't hear what they guessed. Do you yeah, remember? someone said something. Uh, I don't remember what it was now. Because all I heard you say was, nope, good guess, but <laughs> not it. And I was like, oh, I wish I could have known what that was. But yeah. So that was kind of fun. Um, Psalm 118. You said it was it's significant because it also was a model. It's a model for worship, and it's a key messianic psalm. Why don't you just recap a little bit about Psalm 118? Yeah. As I said on Sunday, um, Psalm 118 is, is a really neat psalm. Um, it's, it's in the genre of what are known as Hallel, and you'll, you'll recognize that term from Hallelujah, right? So oh. Hallel, that praise, Yah being Yahweh, right? Like, Praise God, Hallelujah, Hallel, right? So it's okay. it's it's part of a collection known as the Egyptian Hallel. So these psalms that are are praises and celebrations of what God has done for Israel in the Exodus, and then obviously written in light of kind of this kingly language we recognize that, that nobody really knows definitively who wrote Psalm 118. It may have been David. Some people speculate David was writing it after he had kind of solidified the kingdom. You know, they had been surrounded by mm-hmm. all these different Canaanite enemies, and now all of a sudden this, there's rest and there's safety on every side, and Dave, David writes this psalm. There's speculation about that. Uh, we don't know that for sure. But either way, it takes this language and it kind of co-ops Moses' language from Exodus 15 about God being the salvation of the people from Egypt, uh, applies it to the current situation that 
the, the king or ruling one is, is, is experiencing, and then also looks forward and really anticipates, you know, the coming king, Christ, in that cornerstone language. And so we talked about how, how Psalm 118 exemplifies this, this call to worship as God creates a people and then calls them to worship him together, to gather, to celebrate and sing his praises, um, how the, the psalm makes a case for worship, how we worship God because of what he's done for us, rescuing us in the past, how he's also good to us today, and we celebrate his character and who he is today and how we also look forward to that his steadfast love endures forever that eternal enduring covenant faithful loyalty uh, that God shows us as well and then we got into that whole idea of you know the king in worship where we see this king enter the scene um, be on the scene help lead in worship and and the recognition that some of this language is clearly speaking of one who's greater than Israel's king uh, specifically being that Christ as the cornerstone right the 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 stone that the builders have rejected, it has become the cornerstone, right? This is marvelous in our eyes. Um, and so that was really the whole idea is that we, we recapped how as a praise psalm, it helps lead us into a heart of worship and a celebration of who God is. And then how it also anticipate Christ as the object of our worship one day coming. Yeah. And right in the, was it right in the middle? Um, you had said that, hold on, let me find it. The call to worship, the case worship, the king in worship. That's kind of what you just overviewed there. But you had the the body divide into, you had one side say audibly. Yeah. What was that? How great yeah. is your steadfast love? It was the call and response portion. Yeah. After, after kind of issuing his premise in verse 1 and verses 2 through 4, um, what the leader of worship here does is he basically calls the church to worship. And so he says, mm-hmm. let, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. They respond with that. And then it's, let the house of Aaron say, mm-hmm. and they respond with his steadfast love endures forever. And then let all those who fear the Lord say, mm-hmm. his steadfast love endures forever. And so I wanted, to, I wanted the body to get a feel for kind of the way that would have felt to the original audience, that mm-hmm. these, are, these can feel like very abstract concepts, right. but they intentionally draw the people into worship by engaging them mm-hmm. in the act, you know? And so this sort of call and response is intended to function as that call to worship. Yeah. Um, in, in much the same way that, you know, like, I mean, Troy will get up on right. a Sunday morning and he'll say, let's, let's, we've gathered together, right? Mm-hmm. We've come to sing the praises of God together. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's join our voices together in, in celebrating God. You know, and Troy, a lot of times will use that same sort of yeah. um, idea, not maybe not the call and response, though mm-hmm. sometimes we have done those mm-hmm. sort of readings or things. Yeah. Um, but basically saying, here's what we're, we're gathered together under Christ's name. We are gathered together for this purpose. Um, let's, let's begin our praise of him. Well, and it, I believe your point was, too, that it, again, brings this collective, we have this commonality yeah. Yeah. when we look to God. It, it gives the purpose, you know, it gives the purpose for it, right? He reminds them that it is God's steadfast love that forms this people. It is God's covenant faithfulness that brings them together, calls them together, creates them as a people, and gives them this task to accomplish, this this worship of God as their mm-hmm. primary motivation. And I think that's helpful for us to remember as we gather on a Sunday morning, that it's not like we're not all here as private worshipers kind of doing our own thing, right? We're here because God has created us as a people and he has called us together to worship him for this purpose in this season, to gather regularly, um, to celebrate what God has done for us, to remind ourselves of any number of different things, um, to edify each other, to encourage each other. Um, But remembering that the purpose for that is first and foremost God's idea, not man's. One of the things as we're going through these Psalms, um, Pastor Brad, and you said we're going through the Messianic Psalms, meaning we're looking for Christ, Mm. his birth, his betrayal, death, 
all of that through these Messianic Psalms. I find in Psalm 118, until you highlight it, I, I'm finding I personally have a hard time finding some of those ties mm. in the Psalms. How, when when you're reading that passage like 118, what is it that makes you go, oh yes, he is talking about Christ? <laughs> um, well, there's kind of two things. We talked a little bit about when we started. The first of, the first of all is the fact that, you know, in, in Luke 24, Christ looking back and he says like, the Psalms predicted me here. Hmm. So the way I like to explain it to people is like all of Scripture, Old Testament included, is Christocentric. Like if you read everything in light of like all of this is pointing to Christ. And that doesn't mean like every word you're like looking for, okay, where's Christ in this? Right. But like in the grand sweep of things. But the all coming of Scripture, one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everything that, that is anticipated, mm-hmm. this future reality, all of that is pointing toward Christ. And so in a generic way you can kind of see Christ in every psalm. Even those psalms that aren't strictly speaking messianic, they are pointing to, anticipating Christ in a generic way. And all of the Old Testament is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's very clear from Scripture. But more in a more specific way, we are, we are simply relying on the ones that are literally quoted in the New Testament. You know, so you go to some of these New Testament texts and some of the places that I mentioned, you know, reading in Acts 4 and reading in Matthew 21 and reading in, you know, Romans and reading in First Peter, mm-hmm. this language of cornerstone. It's very clear. And, and the New Testament um, translators do a really good job of helping us see that sometimes because a lot of times they'll offset it with quotations or in a different, uh, you know, the different borders sort of idea. And they help us see some of those things. Uh, so when you've read some of those, then you're like, I don't know where this is coming from you know it's coming from back here. You know, um, a lot of our Bibles will have those sort of cross-references where mm-hmm. they'll mention, you'll know, be mm-hmm. like, okay, this is quoted right there in... the middle, see? Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is quoted in this New Testament passage and, and things like that. Um, but th- some of them can be a little bit hard to pick up on. And there are times when you read the New Testament authors and you go, man, I don't know that I would have seen that mm-hmm. in my own, you know, in my own understanding if, if you hadn't been, like, the Holy Spirit had inspired you to write that. Right. I don't know that I would have seen that connection. Um, so there are some times when it feels a little bit like that. Yeah. But so far as the New Testament quotes it and applies it to Christ, that's where it gets pretty easy to be <laughs> to be sure yeah. that we're picking up on language yeah. appropriately. Well, that's helpful. You've, you've brought a lot of light to some of these psalms that we've gone through that uh, I've read through them before, but I don't. I don't know that I've distinctively called out the parts that you are able to extract. And so this I've learned a lot so far in our study. Um, I know I would have liked to hear a little bit more of how does Psalm 118 affect our worship? What was something you wish you had five more minutes to cover? Mm. 118 was a big chapter. I want to come back to that point of application just a bit here in the next Mm -hmm. point when we talk about that. But the biggest thing that I think really struck me that I wish I could have had more time to to lay out is is how the New Testament authors really use the language that that uh, that the psalmist is writing about in Psalm 118. Like in in First Peter two, I find it really fascinating how how Peter expands this imagery and then how he applies it um, because he's talking about like basically the way Christians ought to live. In First Peter 2, he says, so put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, by it may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. Okay, so his premise is basically moral living, right? Christians live as Christians, right? Yeah. Even as strangers and aliens live holy lives today. But then it's interesting because he, he grounds it in this passage. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, here it is, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It's interesting because right, basically, and then he goes on and he talks about the chosen race, the royal mm-hmm. priesthood, the holy nation. And what he's essentially doing is he's he's borrowing for this from, from this language and he's he's saying two things. Number one, he's saying that the the builders, the the Israelites, mm-hmm. the Jews missed Christ. Yeah. Like they and that's how other New Testament authors use it as well. Like they they missed that the foundation going forward is going to be Christ as this cornerstone. And so instead it was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Christ became something they stumbled over. Mm-hmm. And another place in the New Testament talk about being shattered on the rock. Um, sort of idea. But then for those that do understand, he expands this and he and he's making the case that like this is true for Jews and Gentiles, right? That they are now this royal priesthood. They are this chosen race. They are this holy nation because this new temple that's being built isn't built with human hands. It's not being built literally on this cornerstone, but it's being figuratively built on the cornerstone of Christ. And this new temple is the new people of God, right? This living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, right? Ultimately for worship of God, which is very appropriate from Psalm 118. But I just, I find it fascinating how the New Testament authors use Christ as this cornerstone, this this motif of recognizing that like this stone is is the path. It's it's this dividing line, right? Like we talked about from Psalm 1, right? You either accept Christ as the cornerstone or you trip over Christ as the cornerstone. There is no neutrality Mm -hmm. in this conversation. And once you have accepted him, even though that promise was originally made to the people of Israel, Mm -hmm. that language in Christ as the cornerstone becomes the cornerstone for the entirety of the church. And it expands this reality out to include all of the people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles, Mm -hmm. not just a promise made to the Jews. And I love that language. I, I just I love the way that works because because then that's that's the motivation for holy living. Right? He goes on in verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have hmm. received mercy. And that's the motivation for obedience. That's the motivation for our worship. That's the motivation for sanctification and for holiness and mm-hmm. all of these things that he's been commanding them to do is Christ as this cornerstone. And it's just, it's so cool to see how the New Testament authors yeah. use that. So the application in this, you said we'll come back to application. Yeah. The, the first point being kind of the why we worship peace. Like, are you coming mm-hmm. to worship on a Sunday morning? Specifically, but even in your private worship, as you're listening to songs and admiring the mountains and things like that, right. are you are you coming to that activity, recognizing mm-hmm. that the only reason you're even allowed to worship God is because of His covenant faithfulness? Yeah, because God has chosen mm-hmm. to forgive you and to be faithful through the covenant, right? That Jesus inaugurated in His own blood, right? Like that, I think, should give us both a sense of awe and wonder, and also a sense of humility when we come into worship. That like, we are only here because of the blood of Christ. We are called together. This is not about me. Right. Like, that's incredibly critical for us, whether it's private worship in our, mm-hmm. own, in our own lives or whether it's public worship when we gather together as a church, to recognize that what we are engaged in is so much bigger 
than who we are. It is so much bigger than our personal preferences. It is so much bigger than whether I like the music Troy has chosen. It is so much bigger than any number of things. Like, am I oriented toward the audience of one when I come into worship? That's, you know, I made that comment in the the message on Sunday. Like, it, it scares me to think that the vast majority of what passes for worship I think in our country is self-worship. Yeah, It is not oriented toward God. It is not about God's glory. It is not about focusing on him. It's about mm-hmm. what ticks the heartstrings for me. When you said me. that, you said we're all worshipers. Yeah. yeah. And the, the maybe, you're right. We are. It's just who or what are we choosing yeah, I mean, to worship? You think about it practically, right? Like um, if you have a favorite pair of shoes mm-hmm. that you just love, Right. I have several. Yeah. Okay. Like, <laughs> or, or maybe more than one. You can't help but share about it, right? right. You, you can't help but tell people about it. You can't right. help but proselytize, if I can use that right. word, right? You're You've trying to make to these shoes, fans <laughs> out of other people. Why? Well, right. I, I don't know, because you're human. Like, this is what right. we do, right? And you we, want them to experience it. Exactly. But yet, when it comes to Christ, that's just we're it. a little tight-lipped. That's just it. And that's that's the whole point. Like, we will worship something. Yeah. Like, the human heart will worship something, right? And it will share about something, and it mm-hmm. will uh, be joyful about something. It's just a matter of whether or not it's in the right thing or the wrong thing. So we really all are worshipers. Um, and so when you come in on a Sunday morning, you're going to worship something. You're either going to yeah. worship God or you're going to worship yourself and your own preferences. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really a challenge. But recognizing why we're here to begin with, I think, is mm-hmm. the first step in understanding who I'm supposed to be worshiping when we gather together. But secondarily, I would say that how we worship thing, I think, is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, in our modern era, we have a tendency to kind of limit worship, I think. We either make limit all about or worship all about an experience mm-hmm. or we make it dry and crusty and like it can't be emotional. Right. And I think that's that's really to misunderstand especially the books of Psalms. Mm-hmm. Right. Or Are, fun or happy. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I, I I as I went through that list as far as like our, our worship should be historical. It should look back to what God has done for right. us. It should be it should be theological. It mm-hmm. should be grounded in truth. And it should be doxological. It should be mm-hmm. expounding on the joy that we have. Like all three of those things need to be the case. Mm-hmm. And that means that we worship God both with our head and our heart. We worship mm-hmm. God with both our thoughts and our emotions. We don't jettison theology. We don't jettison truth just because we get ecstatic. I mean, it's not about playing one line of music over and over and over and over and over and over and over until you get kind of in a trance. I mean, there's right. some interesting psychological stuff that goes on right. with that. But it's also not this idea of like, if I if I stand here as still as I possibly can, somehow I'm more sanctified than other people. Like that's right. that's not it either. You know, I mean, David, when he was worshiping God, was kind of going crazy, right? And everybody looked at him like, what's wrong with that guy? Right. Right? There's a genuine joy. Like there's a genuine Which maybe thrill. gives some of us wigglers off the hook bit. Which maybe, <laughs> maybe, exactly. Like, it, and that's just it. You know, it's one of those things where we worship God with all of who we are. Yeah. When Now it starts from truth. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you're not just whipping up emotions. That's not the idea. But once the truth is, if the truth has really impacted your head, it can't help but shape your heart. Mm-hmm. It can't help but come out through your lips. You know, it's like if you've really understood, I mean, if you just take one doctrine, like God's God's love or God's goodness or God's sovereignty or God's whatever, grace, you take one doctrine. And meditate on that. If you truly grasp Mm -hmm. that, that reality, you are going to be so overwhelmed by how who God is more than you thought he was and how good he has been to you. You won't be able to stop yourself from worshiping and feeling that emotionally. Right. Like, and so sometimes we can bifurcate that and make it so simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd encourage people to consider that. You know, as long as, long as you are trying to engage in worship, if, if you're having a hard time worshiping, it's like, is, is what you're worshiping, is it grounded in truth? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it coming from Scripture and a truth about who God is? Mm-hmm. You know, or is it all just emotion and sentimentality and emotionalism? 
on the other side of things, it's like if if you're so focused on the truth that you don't feel anything toward God, that's kind of a warning flag too. Like yeah. you, it, it, it's not really hitting your heart if you have no emotional response to God's love. Mm-hmm. Like, and so considering those things as we come to worship, as we consider both private and corporate worship together. And then lastly, that idea of the king in worship is really a who we worship thing. I, I really think that's really critical for us is like our worship ought to be oriented toward God. It ought to be about God. And Christ is the central focus, right? Like sometimes we get, even in modern era, we, we kind of swing back and forth on the pendulum and get really excited about the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit's role is to exalt Christ, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if I mean, numerous times in the New Testament, it, it talks about the idea that like um, someone someone will worship Christ if they are filled with the Spirit. Yeah. Like that's the nature of the beast here. Like this is the way this thing works. That's right. That's, that's There's exactly a different it. driver in the seat. That's exactly <laughs> it. Like the spirits like exalt Christ, yeah. Yeah. you know? And so recognizing that that all of the psalms as we worship is oriented toward Christ and celebrating what he's done for us, mm-hmm. I think is really critical for us to keep in mind as well. I was going to say and to that how do you worship someone you don't know <laughs> and and being in his word and and knowing who God is every side of God yeah helps tremendously so as you well, sit there and hear his word it, it it really i mean worship is impossible without a knowledge of God yeah. like with that, if you don't know God you can you can be around Christians mm-hmm. you you know i mean you can sit in the worship service you can wonder mm-hmm. what's up with those people mm-hmm. but ultimately you can't worship someone you don't know no. like and so there is a reality to that that that's like, if that's a struggle for you, um, there's some real heart check that goes on. Yeah. Like if, if if there's no desire to worship God, it may be an indication that the Spirit isn't present, that you haven't mm-hmm. be, you know bowed the knee of your heart to Christ, mm-hmm. that you haven't accepted His forgiveness for you. And because I mean, as long as that's kind of a cold, you know, impersonal reality that like other people believe, but you just kind of mentally acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Right, it's it's not going to inspire worship in your heart, mm-hmm. and being around it won't change that. No, it'll just make you. It'll just make the gap more apparent. Yeah, you'll be like, why are all these other people so excited? Yeah, even when they don't like the song, mm-hmm. you know, like I mean, mm-hmm. again, if you really like the song, there's secular songs you can get excited about That's and right. kind of feel emotional about. That's right. But it's like when you don't like the song, when it's not mm-hmm. in a style you like, or when it's not ex- exciting to you, and all these people are like really excited about you, like, what's the deal? Mm-hmm. Or emotionally moved. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, because they're emotionally moved not just by the not just by the music, not just by the lyrics, mm-hmm. but by the truth of who they're worshiping. That's right. Amen to that. So where are we headed Sunday? Yeah. Okay. We're going to skip back again. Okay. You know, I know. I know. We're kind of going forward and backward and all over the place. <laughs> but as we walk through the chronology of Christ's life mm-hmm. and kind of these events and how they get fulfilled mm-hmm. in different moments mm-hmm. at different eras, um, different times in His life, we're going to move from Psalm one eighteen and we're going to go back to Psalm forty one. Okay. We're going to move back to Psalm forty one and we're going to hit another Psalm of lament. Uh, okay. It's another psalm that's kind of like, a, oh boy, here we go. You know, it's a little bit of more of a downer, <laughs> um, uh, difficult is he situation. Be up to his neck, I believe the last lament. <laughs> I was, was going to say, David yeah. was like, Lord, I am up to my neck. There's there's <laughs> definitely some hard language here in Psalm 41, and then two weeks from now we're going to go back to another imprecatory psalm, so it's going to okay. get hard again there. But in in Psalm 41, um, it's this. It's this cry for help, you know. It's this. It's this need for God to save. It. We're going to go back to a lot of the same themes that mm-hmm. we found, and the source, the ultimate source of, in many ways, the pain that's going on, is betrayal, right? Mm-hmm. It appears that the psalmist was suffering from um, some sort of sickness, whether it was okay. brought on by sin or by other things. We're not 100 percent sure, mm-hmm. um, though he mentions that, and he and his his opponents are taking advantage of his sickness and saying, "Ha ha, you know, God is judging you." 
Right. Um, and it gets even so bad that the, the prophetic language that we find in Psalm 41 is the language that gets co-opted by John in John 13 of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Hmm. And so he's, he's going to make a comment in there that like, even my friends have turned their backs on me. Even my friends have betrayed hmm. me. And that becomes even truer. Um, and again, John picks up on that language of Judas yeah. for Jesus in John 13. Um, but that's how bad it's gotten. And that's, that's the nature of the assault that he mm-hmm. is feeling here in Psalm 41 is this physical, potentially infirmity, this assault of being maligned um, by his opponents, but even his nearest friends are betraying him as well. And so, yeah, it's going to be a hard psalm. I mean, Psalm 41 has got some hard language in it. But I also think it's going to be a really good reminder mm-hmm. to look forward to how did Christ deal with that. Mm -hmm. And I love John 13. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament because of the way Christ speaks to washing the disciples' feet. And the fact, and I want us to dwell on it a little bit in the message, um, we're going to spend a lot of time considering the reality that like Jesus washed Judas's disciple or Judas's feet knowing that Judas was going to go out from that last supper and betray him and turn him over to the Romans. But no one else knew. Nobody else knew. Nobody else knew in that moment, but Jesus did. And I think that's really critical for us to keep in mind as he uses Mm -hmm. this language, uh, like I said, in John 13 of Mm -hmm. of Christ. That's great. I have goosebumps. Just, again, the imagery of Jesus Mm -hmm. washing feet and knowing I'm washing the feet of the man who will turn me over. Yeah. And so I I think that's going to be something we're going to camp out on a little bit Sunday. Okay. uh, Because that is is potent to think about. Yeah, Psalm 41. So we'll read through to prepare Psalm 41. Yeah, Psalm 41 would be good. And then John 13. Yeah, it would be great things to read um, in anticipation. That's probably enough for people to read through if they're interested. Yeah, for that lament to really come in. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, for the the weight of that to really hit, you know. Very Um, good. But we, you know, it's it's something that we need to grow in. You know, I've I've given, I didn't bring it with me, but there's, there's an interesting quote from Carl Truman that I'm thinking about reading. And it basically speaks to that idea of like our, we kind of want to move on from lament very quickly. Yes. But in a lot of ways, we need to sit and we need to dwell and we need to consider um, mm-hmm. lament because it's such, an, it's such a normal part of human life. It is. And to lament is Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Like to complain, anybody can complain, mm-hmm. but to lament is something that's, that's very Christian to do. And to come through the other side having known who God is yeah. and know his relief and rescue from that, from our trials on this side of heaven. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to Sunday. Thanks for sitting down. My pleasure. Okay. Thanks for listening to Midweek in the Word Sunday Recap. This is a production of Faith Bible Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We'll be back next week with a new recap and a forward look to our Sunday sermon. Make sure to like and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We leave you with this encouragement out of 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We'll see you next week as we sit down with Pastor Brad for another episode of Midweek in the Word Sunday Recaps.